Amen. Well, good morning. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's, uh, let's open to 1 Peter. Um, if you're without a Bible, you can grab one of the Bibles in front of you. If you pick up a Spanish translation, don't be disturbed. You can find an English one somewhere. Um, I think it's around page 950-something, so you can grab one of those. If you don't have one of your own, you're welcome to take that home with you. We'd love for you to have it. Um, as we've been studying through this book, you know, one of the things we talked about a lot, like a major theme of the book is what you could say is the word pilgrims. And so the picture of the Bible, the picture of Christians, and a mega theme within the book of First Peter is this picture for us as Christians is that we are those who are in this life, in this world, wandering about, going through life in the midst of a world that we don't belong to, and in the midst of a people that we don't belong to. And so we are exiles, we're pilgrims who don't belong here, temporarily journeying through. We're going to hear some of those words again this morning. And a commentator, Juan Sanchez, talking about this particular book and this text we're going to read this morning, uh, talks about how when you're, when you're in the midst of a culture that you don't belong to, maybe even if you come into a gathering where you're, you don't belong to the gathering, there's a few different reactions that we can have. I think this is really helpful as we think about this text. One of the reactions we can have is we can disengage completely. And this is something that Christians have done over the centuries. Centuries, is uh, Monasteries were born out of an impulse to want to disengage completely from culture. So that's one potential reaction, is you just completely disengage from the world. And you try to be different by detaching yourself completely from cultural structures. That's one potential reaction. The other one you could call activism or reform, where you try your best as believers, and there are many who still do and have done over the centuries, we try to create a heaven on earth. We try to reform, and a degree of activ activism and reform is helpful and healthy. A degree of disengagement is healthy. But if you swing to one or the other, it's just naive and not a helpful way to react to the culture that you live in that isn't your home. A third potential reaction to living in a place that's not your own is just to, just to accommodate the world around you and just to kind of fall in line with everything that they say, do, the patterns of thinking, the habits, the customs of the ways of the land. And none of those three options are what the believer is called to. And so this morning we're going to see maybe what we would say is a biblical response to living as strangers and exiles in this land. So up until this point, we've had just this glorious experience of seeing who we are in Christ, those who have been chosen by God, elect exiles in the world. We've got this salvation and inheritance that's, that's eternal, it's imperishable, undefiled, reserved in heaven for you as the people of God that we are those who are called to be different than the people of this land because the God that we know and serve is different. So the Bible says, be holy for God is holy. Be holy as God is holy. The God we serve is different, so his people are called to be different. And last week, we saw this glorious section that talks about how we as those who come to Jesus as the living stone, we become living stones filled with the life of Christ and built upon Jesus as the cornerstone and quite literally built upon one another, being built up as a spiritual house to reflect and display and proclaim the, the excellencies of God who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
And so from this point on, the section we're going to, the two verses we're going to cover this morning, really through the end of the book, it's kind of unpacking for us a life lived to that end. Holy people, different in the world, living stones, built up to reflect the character and nature of God differently in this world. Not disengaged, not trying to make heaven on earth, not accommodating the world completely, but living differently in the land where God has us temporarily until we get to our heavenly home. So Peter says now in verse 11, let's go there together. We'll read these two brief verses. That's what we're going to cover this morning. He says, Beloved, if you hear this from me as one of your pastors, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable or excellent, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So this brief section, you know, Peter's addressing this to, to Christians who are dispersed throughout Asia Minor, current-day Turkey, believers kind of everywhere, a lot of them kind of off the grid, off the radar, feel like they're kind of relatively unknown in culture. And he's, he says, beloved, those whom I love, I urge you. And let's just pause there just for a moment and kind of capture maybe a little bit of the heart behind these couple of words. This is an appeal he's making out of love. But Peter loves the people of God. It's interesting to look in the Gospels. The only time the word beloved, this same word is used, is, this, is when the Father speaks of Jesus. That Jesus is sent from the Father as his beloved Son, with whom he's well pleased. And now the church is sent as the beloved of God into the world. And so Peter, as a pastor, as a shepherd of the people, is like, beloved, those whom I love, let me urge you to do some specific things. And there's this appeal made out of love that we could equate to something that maybe many of us have experienced. It's kind of the appeal of someone who loves us to be faithful to God. Like, I urge you, I appeal to you. Proverbs chapter 27 speaks of the faithful wounds of a friend. In verse 6, it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Verse 9, it goes on to say, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. I don't know about you, but I know I've been the beneficiary of this kind of benefit. The people of God, those who love me, urging me, appealing to me to remain faithful to God in various ways throughout the last 20 or so years I've been walking with Jesus. The refining work of the body of Christ, a gentle rebuke from a brother, the faithful wounds of a friend, reminding us of who we are, the battle we're in, all to help us remain faithful to God. So this is a, an appeal made out of love, but it's also an appeal made to our identity. So Peter says, I urge you, beloved, I urge you as aliens, as sojourners and exiles to do certain things, which we'll get to in a moment. This is an appeal to their identity, to our identity. We are sojourners. We're here in this world temporarily. We talked about this in the past. Like We're just passing through. You may have found yourself in a city that, where you don't belong, and someone asks you if you want to do like the rewards thing for some local business. You're like, no, it's okay. I'm all good. I'm just passing through. That's what we're like in this world. Like We're just temporarily here, and we belong to another land. Our city, our, our home isn't found in this place. 
That's what the word sojourner means. We're just passing through. Foreigners in this world, pilgrims walking through a land that, a land that isn't our home, amongst the people we don't belong to. As we heard last week, we are these living stones who continually come to Jesus, who continually connect to one another for our life and our vitality and our, our fruitfulness in this life. And as we do, each one of us, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. As some have once said, to serve as an embassy to one another, this place of refuge amidst a, a foreign territory. That's what the church is like for the people of God. In the midst of this foreign land, and we proclaim that life is found in Jesus. So Peter says, you're a chosen race, you're a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people of God's own possession. Why? So that you would proclaim Proclaim the excellencies of God who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's our life, a life of contrast. We used to be in darkness through faith in Jesus Christ. We now live in marvelous light. It's all throughout the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. You used to be far off. Now you've been brought near. You used to be darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. You used to be aliens and strangers, but now you're family and friends. Somebody say amen. This is our position in Christ. You used to be this, and now you're this. This this human contrast. All that we would proclaim the excellency of the one who has done that work. We used to be in darkness, but now we're light through the Lord Jesus. So in light of who you are, the implication is this. In light of who you are, be who you are. In light of who God has made you, be who God has made you. In light of your identity, live out your identity. Don't say you're one thing and live a life that's disjointed from or disconnected from that reality. Be who you are. Be who God says that you are in Him. As I've been praying through this text, I think there's one thing for us to remember that some of you right now in this room, a room this size, statistically speaking, it's likely not everybody in this room is a Christian. It's likely that some, one, or some ones in this room, that you're living right now the life that by God's grace will be your used to be. That one day, maybe even today, will be that threshold you cross where you look back at the life that you now live as your used to be. Like, I used to be here, but now I'm here. And the thing that happened in between is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that allows you, it causes you to cross from from death to life. And I pray that even as you sit here and, and listen to my words, that you turn away from the things of the world and turn to God. Walking in the ways of the world, maybe is where you find yourself. Flirting with the futility of sin passed down from generation to generation. That's all wording that we've seen already in this brief journey through First Peter. There's a, a futile, a fruitless way about the things of the world. And it's likely some of you in this room are in that place now. Turn. Stop trying to find life where only death is promised. And turn to Jesus today. Life isn't found there. Come out and call upon his name and you will know mercy. You will be brought near. He'll, he'll pull you out of darkness. And may today be the first day you lay aside that former life and put on 
the newness of life that's found in Jesus. And for the rest of your days, you can then refer back to I used to be, the things I used to do when I didn't know Jesus, but now I put them away. And for the Christian, we saw this as we studied through the book of Ephesians, and it's all over the place in the New Testament. There's this picture, when we come to faith in Jesus, there's an old way of life that we put aside. It's like an old uniform. We set it aside. We put on a new uniform. There's this old self that we put away. And Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, it says it this way. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. Did you notice that word belongs? Put off your former manner of life because it belongs to an old you. It doesn't belong to you anymore. It doesn't even fit you anymore. You look silly in it. It doesn't belong to the new man. It's not fitting for a child of God, so put it away. It belongs to the former manner of life. It's corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And then put on the new self, put off and put on, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So there are behaviors, there is a manner of life, there's conduct associated with who we used to be, a former lifestyle that, no surprise, is still very popular in the world, but it's unbecoming of a child of God. And God says, put off that old way of life. That's not you anymore. That's what you used to be. That's what you used to do. Stop trying to fit into it like it still fits you. I rescued you from that. We're going to see in just a second this call that there's still, for the, the child of God, for us today, there's still the call to put away certain things and to put on the new those ways need to be put off. And the new lifestyle or conduct which flows from our newness of life, we need to put it on. 1 Peter 1, 15, 18, the same word is used. This word conduct we'll see in just a moment. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Verse 18, knowing that you're ransomed from the futile ways or conduct inherited from your forefathers. Here's the main point I want you to walk away with this morning. This is where we're going to get into the, really the two primary commands of this text. But the main point is this is that your conduct has eternal consequences. Simply put, your conduct has eternal consequences. And we're going to see that in both the negative command and in the positive command in this text. So, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to do, do two things. As you look back at the text, look there with me. Chapter 2, verse 11. I urge you as sojourners and exiles, firstly, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That's the first command. Abstinence. Don't do certain things. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That's the first command. The second is an affirmative or positive command, but instead of being those who give in to the passions of the flesh, keep your conduct honorable or excellent among those who don't know God. Abstinence and excellence are the two commands. Practice abstinence. Abstain from certain things. Practice excellence. Do certain things as a child of God. So let's deal with that first one, abstinence. And we usually hear that word in relation to sexual matters, but this isn't just a dealing with sexual immorality or physical lust. It does include that, but it includes a whole lot more than that. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So this idea of like fleshly lust, fleshly 
passions, is, a, is to include any desire that's governed merely by human nature and not by the Spirit of God. That's a whole lot of things. It's not just sexual issues, physical issues. Anything that's merely governed by our human nature and not by the Spirit of God would be considered a fleshly passion. These are desires not driven by divine influence. And so in Galatians chapter 5, many of you heard growing up, you've done it with your kids, possibly this, this fruit of the Spirit chapter shows this, this war against the things of the flesh, mere nature, and the things of the Spirit, the divine nature, and they war against each other. They're opposed to each other. Let me read Galatians 5, verses 16 through 24. Paul says this, speaking to another church, In Galatia, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. There's that term again. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Just listen to this list, because it goes well beyond just sexual temptation. The works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Here's one of our challenges. We don't see these desires of the flesh and all their form and flavor as things that war against our soul. That's what, that's what God is telling us, that these various things that we all the time are inclined to give ourselves to, they're waging warfare against our soul, this eternal part of us that's been saved by Jesus Christ. That very thing is seeking to be destabilized by the things that we oftentimes just flippantly give ourselves to. Peter says, don't do it. Like, keep away from those things because they wage war against your soul. They destabilize the foundation of faith you have in Jesus. But our temptation is to look at the things that God is calling us to abstain from and just be like, oh, great. Now I can't do the things I want to do. I can't do this or this or God's depriving me of something because he's telling me not to do. That's our temptation in the flesh. And God's plain answer to you this morning, if there's any measure of that within you that kind of rails against that, just hear this. When God says to abstain from fleshly desires, it's not because he's depriving you of something. It's because he's protecting you from something. He's not depriving you of joy. He's trying to preserve for you joy, greater life. He's not trying to rob you of life. He's trying to give you a path to life. But we don't believe that so often. We believe it's just simple like deprivation. Like God isn't about our joy. But in his presence, there's fullness of joy, right? But God looks at us, he's like, no, 
Like those aren't, those aren't you anymore. They're not fitting for you. They're not good things I'm depriving you of. I'm trying to protect you, and our conduct has eternal consequences. This war against our soul like, carries with it this echo into eternal things. The permanent part about us, the eternal part about us, the soul. There's a war that's being waged against our soul, an eternal war. And so let me just give you a few things to consider as you're thinking about this battle, that staining from fleshly desires. Let me just give you a few things to consider. <clears throat> Are you letting any particular sin or just sin in general sit on the throne of your heart? That's wording that's used in Romans chapter 6. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Reign as a king, as the one who's in control, controls your emotions and your motives. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Here's the humbling part about this. Whatever's on the throne will garner our obedience. Whatever is on the throne is going to be where our allegiance and our obedience falls. And so is there anything you've allowed to sit in that place that only Jesus is fitting to sit upon? Are you letting anything sit on the throne? Are you providing any opportunity for your flesh? Romans 13, 14 says, make no provision for your flesh in regard to its lusts. And so often, <clears throat> our temptation as people is to try to figure out, like how, like, how much can I get away with and still be saved? Like, how close can I get to try to get as much, like, benefit in the here and now, but yet still not cross the line? Because I don't, I mean, I don't want to go overboard. But is that really the posture of the believer? Like what, what we seem to see like in this text and in others is like stay away as far as you can from that line. Like don't crack the door at all. Like don't make any provision for your flesh in regard to its lust because it will seize the opportunity like a rabid animal. And Satan, your enemy, who is a real enemy, who seeks someone to devour will seize the opportunity as well. Don't make any provision for your flesh in regard to its lust, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the alternative in Romans 13. The armor of light that you've been given. The implication is you have everything you need at hand to choose heavenly things and not the things of this world. And maybe you just need to consider, are you providing an opportunity for your flesh? Maybe another question to consider is, are you trying to fight alone? I think we're all guilty of this. I'm, I mean, I'm strong enough. Like, I don't, I don't really need that. I don't need to confess this. I mean, I can just kind of battle it on my own. Like, how's that going for you? Like, how many years have you been telling yourself that? How many moments has it been damage done because you've, in just prideful self-reliance, haven't brought anybody else in to provide counsel and encouragement? Second Timothy 2, 22. This wonderful recipe for godliness in the Christian life. The first part is flee. Like flee the evil desires of your youth. Same kind of picture. Desires of the flesh. But that's not it. But pursue righteousness. Like faith, love, and peace with those who call on the name of the Lord with a pure heart. Flee, pursue, and do it with other people. We talk about community all the time. It's just, it becomes super redundant. But guess what? It's redundant in the scriptures. It's all over the place. The Christian life is to be lived with other Christians. It's inescapable. 
And like living stones, like Matt Brown talked about last week, is you don't find a fruitful brick, a fruitful living stone just laying out in the yard somewhere itself. It's going to get covered in weeds. It's not really usable. But when it's stacked with other bricks, it becomes a spiritual house, fitting for use, usable in the hands of God. That's what we are, like living stones being built upon Jesus and on one another, 2 Timothy 2.22. Maybe this last question is maybe the hardest of all. <clears throat> is Are you fighting at all? When you think about the things that wage war against your flesh, these fleshly desires, are you fighting at all? And maybe for some of you the answer is no, just simply because there's been so many years that have gone by where you just feel like there's no other alternative other than just to get steamrolled by your sin. And you've heard this from me before, from this pulpit. That's a lie from the pit of hell. If you are a Christian in this room, the promise of God to you is you have everything you need to say no to sin and yes to God. He has given you everything you need for life and godliness. Through his word, his precious promises, his divine nature within you through his spirit, his people present here with you, you have everything. There's never going to be a sin or a season where you just somehow have to be resolved that this is just going to dominate your life. Sin will have no dominion over you, Romans chapter 6. Just like death couldn't hold Jesus, sin can't hold you because Jesus in you, newness of life, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you to give life to your mortal body. That's the promise for the people of God. Somebody say amen. That's our promise. There's never going to be a moment where we look at a particular sin, a particular struggle, even if it's been there for years, and somehow feel like it's an inescapable reality that we're just going to constantly, like it's a thorn in your flesh. Well, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 is not talking about a sin you can't escape. There's no sin that can be this abiding thorn in your flesh as if you can't move away from it because the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is alive and he's alive in us. So don't be just resolved that you can't fight, but flee, crucify, put to death the things of the flesh. Abstain from these things that wage war against your soul. So whether lust or lying, greed or gossip, it may be a constant hunger for attention or acceptance, an insatiable appetite for material things, an endless grasping for security and control, a filthy mouth or a filthy mind. It might be blatant immorality or hidden lust. Don't let it rain. Fight. Jesus is worth the fight. And what we see next is so central to this because our life as professing believers says more than just something about us. It's the glory of Christ at stake. Let your behavior be excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing, the thing of being a Christian, that they slander you in, they might in the day that Jesus returns give glory to God when he visits. Your faith is saying something. Your profession is saying something not just about you but about Jesus himself. That's why it's so important. So don't let it rain. There's only one throne, and if you're in Christ, Jesus occupies that throne. And be encouraged, death couldn't hold Christ. So through faith in him, there's no sin that can hold you captive. Fight with the people of God by your side. Fight with the word of God in your hands. 
the promises of God in your mind and abstain from destructive desires and let your conduct be excellent. If your desire for the things of the flesh exceeds your desire for the things of the Spirit, there's two potential reasons for that. It's probably more than two, but two that come to mind. Is you may not have the Spirit of God within you. Just to say it plainly. Like if, if you don't find yourself with an appetite for the things of God, but an insatiable appetite for the things of the world, you may have been to church your whole life, but you have to consider, maybe I don't have the Spirit of God within me. Because the Spirit wages, wages war against the flesh. There's going to be this conflict, ultimately. That could be the case, and it's worth consideration. The second could be that you have quenched the Spirit for so long you're so used to compromise that sin no longer tastes or feels or smells like sin. There's this horrifying reality that there's a quenching of the Spirit of God that can take place where we become numb to things that should, should be hideous in our sight, desensitized to the things of this world that should cause us to be taken aback. And all this, church family, every single one of us, including myself, like we have to be mindful of just the apathy towards sin in our own life. And take heed to these commands, like abstain, like keep away from these things. Why? Because they wage war against your soul. Your conduct has eternal consequences. Abstinence and excellence. In verse 12, keep your conduct. So in contrast to giving yourself to the desires of the flesh, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As those who live among a world that does not know God, our conduct has eternal significance and is of eternal consequence. Giving ourselves to desires of the flesh will war against the eternal security of our soul. Giving ourselves to holy and honorable and excellent pursuits will not only be a path of joy for us, but will also lead to some degree, to the salvation of others, a turning of others from the things of the world to God, acknowledgement of the glory of Christ. There's, it's really unclear if this is really talking about the salvation of people or in some way at the end of time when Jesus returns, there's going to be some acknowledgement even by those who don't believe in that moment, that they'll glorify him even in his judgment of them. They saw the conduct of this peculiar people of God in this life. I like to think maybe it's both. There's a way in which like our conduct becomes a platform and like this, this light that we see like in Matthew chapter 5. And this section seems to mirror. It's almost a little bit like Peter is either paraphrasing or just recalling upon when he heard Jesus utter these words in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. You probably heard this text before. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus says to his disciples, to the people who believe in him, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give Glory to your Father who's in heaven. There's that picture. There's a way in which glory is going to be re returned to God in light of how the people of God live in this life. I like to think that's at least in some measure salvation for those 
who turn to Christ. They see us as the people of God. They curiously peer in. There's a work that God does, giving us a platform through our conduct to speak about the, the work of Jesus, to preach the gospel. But there's, there's proclamation and the practice in our life. Now, these believers in 1 Peter were apparently the objects of slander and false accusation. And God's instruction for them and for us is let your response to even accusation and persecution be excellent conduct. Let your life prove to be excellent in their sight so that even though they slander, even though they falsely accuse, at some point in the future, even if it's at the very end, the day when Jesus returns, that day of visitation, they're going to turn, they're going to say, you know what, Jesus is alive, and he's alive in these people. And God will receive the glory for that. And your godly conduct is a tool God will use to convince the world that he is alive and alive in you. Your conduct seems to carry persuasive power. I remember my first job out of college. I had a boss who was just, just a mess. He was just not nice to me. I was young. I mean, I was, I guess, 21 or so young, motivated, like I got kind of a bait and switch with this job. I was supposed to be a financial analyst. I basically became a secretary in the Homeowners Association. It was a train wreck. Um, and my boss was just, he's just, to put it plainly, he was just really rude and mean to me, like just demeaning, like everything I did was wrong. We were sitting in meetings, I'm eating a sandwich like everybody else is, and he called me out for how loud I'm chewing. Like I'm not a loud chewer. He just wanted to bag on me for, because he wanted to. Like he just, I was a young kid and and everything I did was just like nickel and dime, like there's no affirmation at all. And you met those bosses before? All right, some of you I know have. Hopefully you're not one of those bosses. See me after if you are, and we'll talk about it. But I remember in that, in that job, one of the things that was abundantly clear to me at, like at the tail end, I got laid off from that job when the, one of the tech bubble bursts um, back in 2000. And... Um, ended up at State Farm after that. But when I lost that job, he wrote a letter of recommendation for me. And in the midst of all that, we were newly married. I remember really having to wrestle with like not finding my identity in my job, not finding my identity in the affirmation of others, particularly those in the world, in the workplace. But when he wrote this letter, it was really interesting because he, he tried to capture, he knew as a Christian, we had talked about issues of faith. And um, in that letter, he, he talked about how the patience of Job he spelled Job, J-O-B-E, by the way, which I always thought was funny. But, but there was something in what he captured that wasn't because, gee whiz, I'm a good guy. Because I think by God's grace, there was some measure of my reaction to him being, you know what, I'm, I'm going to prove that Jesus is alive in me because I'm going to continue to work hard and do my best. I'm going to try to stay humble. I'm not going to rail against him. I'm not just going to flee because I don't like the guy. I'm going to try to live excellently before him. I didn't do that perfectly, but there's something that he saw, enough to try to capture it in some way in that letter of recommendation that God was alive in me. So what does the world see in us? In those moments where maybe we get slandered, treated unfairly, falsely accused, maligned, marginalized by people in our lives, our reaction from God's word to us should be that just Keep acting, living, carrying yourself with excellence. And there will be a day. It may not be today. It may not be in that job. But there will be a day. 
that God will receive glory because they'll see your profession matched with your practice and they'll see in some measure that Jesus is alive and he's alive in you. But our conduct says something about God. And because our conduct says something about God, our conduct has eternal consequences. This day of visitation. When Jesus returns to judge this non-believing world, and that same day will be a day of grace for God's people, right? So we've talked about that in the, the first chapter, like this, this day of gracious visitation where we as the people of God, having put our Jesus, that Jesus returns to give us grace, to call us forever home to be his. What we know in part, we get to know in full in that moment. And let me just close off with these two things. I want us to think for a moment. I'm going to give us a couple minutes to let this breathe here in just a second. If you're a Christian in this room, the main point is still the point of this message in this text. Like your conduct has eternal consequences. In Romans chapter 2, there's this picture that for the Jewish believers, like those who claim to know God, but by their acts denied him. There's this procession of things that Paul says and talks about, but the end of it is this, is that you who say you don't do this and you do it yourself, you who say don't rob temples and you steal, says you need to understand it's because of it, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. That's a really sobering picture. And I don't say that in a heavy-handed way because the grace of God, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, Right? We should feel the gravity of the fact that God has put, here, put us here as his people to represent him to this world. And our lives, with our profession, say something about Jesus himself and not just about our own personal character. So let's take seriously this call to remember, to abstain from the things that wage war against the spirit, the things that wage war against our soul, the things of the flesh, and to... Uh, let our behavior by the grace of God be excellent in this life. If there's anything that you find yourself in those questions I gave you earlier, anything reigning in your life, sat on the throne for too long, any door that you've just remained open because quite honestly you, you like the taste of that sin way too much to put it completely away. You haven't been willing to pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, take extreme measures because they just seem too extreme. I don't need to get rid of my TV or I don't need to get rid of cable or get rid of my computer or get a flip phone because it's always at hand for me. Whatever it might be, like are you self-reliant even in making provision for your flesh? Whatever that may be, I want you to consider that as I give you a couple minutes here in a moment to consider how God wants you to respond. Like, What is one thing that God wants you to do in response to this message for you as a believer? As a child of God, forgiven, called to be those who live in newness of life and if you're in this room and you've never trusted in Jesus, there's, there's, a, there's a risk in this message, and this is the way I'd describe it. If after hearing what I've said the last 30 minutes and what you walk away with is I need to live a better life, I need to change my behavior, then either you or I have missed it. Maybe more likely you have missed it. I'll give myself the benefit of the doubt. This is not about behavioral reform. Like if you're not in Christ, you're not, you're not a Christian, you've never come to Jesus, like you've never rested in his perfect work for you and found forgiveness through no work of your own but solely through him, 
please don't get this twisted. I'm not telling you you need to change your behavior. You need inward transformation that leads ultimately to change behavior. You need Jesus. And this cross behind me, as you look at it, as you stare at it, because it's large and it's there, it's present, it's prominent in this place, because this is the place where everything that's wrong about you, about us, was dealt with. That Jesus became everything that's wrong about us. And every single ounce of the shame and guilt and punishment owed to us because of our various sinning and our sinful nature, Jesus became fully, completely. He became our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God through him. Well, how does that happen? How do you become righteous? Well, you look to him in faith. You believe in the finished work that he accomplished on the cross. You believe that he's alive, that he is God. You trust in him. Rest from your works and trust in his works. But if you haven't done that, don't leave here saying that somehow you just need to live a better life. If you find your life dominated by sin and self, it may very well be that the need of response to this message that you're startled, rattled in the deepest part of who you are, that you get off the path of chasing the things of the world and that you turn to Jesus and start living for him. That God has brought you here for such a day, a moment as this, that this might be the very turning point in your life where you'll some years from now be able to look back and say, I used to be this and now I'm this. I used to be chasing after the world. I used to be just running hard after my own desires, but thanks be to God, there was a day where I came, I came forward and I gave my life to Christ. But do you feel the weight of darkness? Or does it always seem to abound? It's unshakable. Do you feel powerless against the desires of your flesh? What I want you to hear from me now is that Jesus bids you to come to him. You are the one. When he, said, when he said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. You are the weary. You are the heavy laden. You're the one that needs rest, so come. Come to him. Find the rest that you've been longing for, that you are trying to find in this world that you'll never find here. Come to him. He's the only one who can provide you rest and rescue that which you so desperately need and desire. So will you come? Will you come to him, the living stone, so he can give you life? And whether you're Christian or non-Christian, that's our response. Continually come to the living stone to find life in his name. I want to take a couple minutes and invite the worship team up. I want you to bow your head with me and we're going to take a little bit longer pause And I want you just to evaluate maybe specific ways in your heart. If you're a Christian in this room, maybe the question is, how is God calling me to respond in obedience today? How do I need to take seriously the call to holiness and righteousness? And if you're not a Christian this morning, like you've never truly believed I want to ask as the worship team just kind of plays acoustically that you'd come that you'd come up front. Twenty years ago, six weeks in a row, I was asked to come up front if I would trust Christ. We don't do this very often. But there's something that can be effective about a call to 
come just to give you life. So as a group, as we have our heads bowed, I'm just going to pray. I'm going to pray for God to work silently in our hearts. And, and if you feel God is calling you to come, then I beg you to respond in obedience and just come up front and pray with you. Spirit of God, I don't have the words to compel anyone to respond to this message. I don't have the personality, the energy. What's impossible with me, what's impossible with us is possible with you. Uh, there is brokenness in this world and there's brokenness that uh, abounds in our lives individually. And so I beg you, Spirit, even now that you would work on behalf of your people, that you work in the hearts of any in this room that are apart from you. For the sake of our good, for the sake of your glory, would you move even now? Soften hearts of stone, give them hearts of flesh that we might respond in faith and obedience.